Interstate Batteries is a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation. So if you're looking for high-quality batteries, you need to check out a local Interstate Batteries retail store, or you can visit them online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. Uh, We got an interesting podcast today, and I'll tell you why. I was driving down the road, and every once in a while, I drive in front of a DNR building. And uh, this DNR office that's there kind of controls this, uh, this wildlife management area that is near my house. And I saw a tractor parked out front with a planter on it. I saw a plow and it kind of had me thinking, what are these guys doing? And then the broader question at that point is, how is the state of Iowa managing their public lands, uh, public hunting lands, specifically WMAs? Now, the conversation goes beyond how they plant, you know, why they plant crops and and why they plant certain grasses and how they manage uh, things like deer and turkey. We, we get a little bit deeper, but I get on the phone with a local biologist out of the eastern part of the state. His name, name is Kurt Kemmer, and he kind of walks us through not only what his role entails, the amount of acreage that he covers him and his team cover and uh, what he does uh, throughout the entire year as far as managing Iowa's public land so uh, I've always been interested in this I had a a great time chatting with Kurt and hopefully you guys uh, find this podcast interesting too but before we get into the podcast we got to pay the bills and uh, remind everybody to go check out Bondurant Custom Furniture, whether you go to Bondurant and uh, stop at their their retail store or you just visit them online, BondurantCustomFurniture.com. Take a look at their gallery. Take a look at what these guys are are making. They make some really kick-ass stuff and hopefully uh, you guys might get a little spark and say, hey, I want to buy something from them Uh, and that helps go and support this podcast or just find out more information about them. Their address and their telephone number is online as well, bondurantcustomfurniture.com. Check them out. We've paid the bills now. Let's get into today's How Iowa Manages Its Public Land podcast with wildlife biologist Kurt Kemmer. All right, on the phone with me today, um, and I'll be completely honest with you, I'm excited for this podcast because I always like to know what is going on in the state of Iowa uh, from a Department of Natural Resources level. And today's guest is Kurt Kemmer from the Iowa DNR. Kurt, how are you doing today? Very good. Yeah, good morning, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I had this idea or this thought kind of pop in my head uh, after I was having a conversation with some guys who are really into 
um, managing land and, you know, planting food plots and managing the grass and the timber and all that stuff. And I, I had this question pop in my head, like, how does the state of Iowa manage their public land? And so I reached out to the Iowa Department of uh, Natural Resources and they sent me your direction and, and we're going to have a really good conversation today. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us um, what your role is and what part of the Iowa you kind of maintain? Sure. Yep. So uh, my title is wildlife biologist and I'm in the, the uh, wildlife management section of the Iowa DNR's Wildlife Bureau. Uh, I, I work out of the what's called the Makokota Wildlife Unit, and my office is based out of Makokota, Iowa. But I cover six counties in east central Iowa, kind of that lobe that sticks out there a little further east than everything else. Yep. Um, basically, kind of from Dubuque down to the Quad Cities, uh, that that region in there. I have six counties of, of coverage that me and the team that I'm part of uh, work in. Okay, cool. So kind of from a, from a high-level standpoint then, what does a wildlife biologist do every day? Sure, and um, right out of the gate I can say that uh, every day or almost every day is different, and that's uh, absolutely one of the reasons I, I love this job and love, you know, love working for this department is because it's, it's not, you know, the same old thing. Uh, I get to cover a lot of country, see different things and do different things every single week. And then right. seasonal, there's, there's changes and things too. But uh, if I was to kind of sum it up or, or frame it up so folks who have no, um, you know, no prior knowledge of kind of how that, that framework is set up within the department, um, there, there's two halves to the DNR, basically. There's the envi- Environmental Services Division, and that's kind of the environmental uh quality sort of things and, and monitoring and things you think of like air quality, water quality, um, solid waste type things, uh, make, making sure that, you know, our air, land, water are, are clean and, and those types of things. And then there's the conservation and recreation division. And that's what our, you know, hunters and fishermen are going to be a little bit more familiar with uh, on the CRD side. That is the fisheries, wildlife, uh, forestry, law enforcement, kind of that whole side of the DNR. So the Wildlife Bureau obviously is in the, the con and rec side of the DNR. And within the Wildlife Bureau, we're tasked with uh, not only managing all of, of Iowa's, Iowa's wildlife for the, the people of Iowa, but also managing our many of our public lands. Um, you know, we do not in the Wildlife Bureau get involved with parks and state recreational areas because those are kind of their own standalone things all of our magnificent state parks but when you start talking about what's referred to as a wildlife management area kind of those primitive uh that's that's where i'm going to go hunt today type of uh, public areas all across the state that's that's our wildlife management section that'd be me and the many other folks uh in wildlife management that, that take care of those areas, manage them and try to manage them for, for wildlife and for hunters and, and other users as well. It's not just hunters, but they are multi-use areas. So Right. And, and that was the reason I, um, I was driving by uh, a piece of public land by where I live. And there's actually, it's the, it's the Hawkeye wildlife management area, uh, South uh-huh. of Cedar Rapids, North Iowa city. And, 
a pretty big section of public ground there. And uh, I saw some guys out with tractors this summer. It looked like they were planting some some kind of grass. They had a, a grass seed planter and then, uh, you know, another guy with a plow or whatever. And uh, so it kind of got me thinking, you know, how, how, the, how do they do that? So, um, but you also are kind of in charge of some waterways and uh the mississippi river too right part of it that that's definitely part of what i do you bet you know again back to that it's such a diverse job but uh being i have four counties that are right along the mississippi river uh that that is uh part of what i do a lot of coordination with partner agencies um both federal state and then even you know uh, county and local level type governments but uh yeah, we work in, in close cooperation with the Army Corps of Engineers, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, both of those entities have, I would say, kind of the biggest presence on the river, if you will, being that that is uh, uh, at least up in our part of the part of the world here, and you know, from mid uh, mid Iowa latitude on up north, that's all part of the Upper Mississippi National Fish and Wildlife Refuge. Yep. So a lot of coordination with those folks, but then, you know, we have our hands in the in the works, too, and we manage several really nice wildlife management areas, uh, complexes right along the Mississippi River, both in my unit and the other uh, wildlife units with the DNR, both uh, up and down the river. So, okay. Uh, yeah, we're, we're not out on the river every single day, but we certainly have a presence and an involvement there, and, uh, you know, that, that is part of... Uh, managing our wildlife is managing their habitat but really the biggest part i guess of managing any wildlife population is to manage where they live and how they uh, how they stay healthy how they stay productive their habitat so good habitat clean water um, with that said i want to talk a little bit uh because we're coming up here on deer season um, I want to talk about some of the, the public hunting, the wildlife management areas that you guys cover. Not, not any place really specific, but kind of talk about what your guys', I guess, goals are every single, single year, how you do what you do, and why you do what you do in regards to, hey, maybe we need to uh, you know, chop down some trees, or maybe we need to plant some trees, or maybe we need to plant some corn or food plots for these, this wildlife. How do you guys make those decisions? Sure, and that's where we really get into the fun, you know, the fun part of the job. But every wildlife management area, or I'm going to refer to them as WMAs, every WMA has a management plan. And that's kind of the guiding document on, you know, what our overall objectives are. And it does outline a lot of the practices we're going to use to get to that objective. Now, a management plan, I, I like to call them a living document, and it needs to be because the way we manage our public lands is an adaptive process. We have to be adaptive. Um, anyone who manages land or works with land, I think, realizes that not everything goes to plan. You can you can spend a lot of time putting everything down, every every detail on paper, and Mother Nature throws you a curveball, and and boom, you better be able to kind of react or adjust. And that's that's kind of our principle of adaptive management. Let's go out there with our best foot forward. Um, you know, follow our our management plans and designs, implement a practice, but then you know, stop and see and evaluate did that work or how well did it work or, you know, as, as the environment changes or the, um, the needs on the area change, how do we 
uh, then in kind respond and, and, and keep going. But, um, yeah, to the root of your question, uh, so we take that, that management plan document. Um, it's, it's put together by several different folks, part of the wildlife management team at, at any given wildlife unit. Uh, so there's been a lot of involvement in different different sets of eyes look at it. It's not just one person's goal of, uh, you know, this this is what has to be done on this area. We try to uh, make sure that, you know, it's it's well thought out and kind of well planned and that it's serving the good for both the natural resource, uh, which is the wildlife, the, you know, the clean water, the trees, the everything out there that, that really creates that ecosystem, but also for our constituents, for the people of Iowa, the, the outdoorsmen and women that are going to use the area. So it's really a two-sided, or, you know, I, I kind of call it a two-sided thing. We're doing it, managing the area for the resource. We're also managing it for the people. Gotcha. So we take we take that plan um, and we start to run with it depending on what, what season we're in and, and, you know, prioritizing different aspects of the plan, what needs to be done first and, and foremost and we kind of work our way down from there. There's definitely a seasonality to what we do, and I think everybody that hunts or recreates on public land realizes that. You know, say in the springtime, that's a time of year when we're often uh, doing prescribed burning. We're putting in our food plots. You know, we're doing those uh, springtime things. As you move into summer, it can be more of a you know maintaining some of our our food plots, some of our prairie seedings. Doing water level management on our on our wetlands, trying to grow uh, duck food, things like that, and then you get into fall, and then again water level management. Uh, maybe we move into some of our timber management practices and doing some of that, as well as as we move into the winter. A lot of times that's when we're getting some of that uh, brush and tree management, woodland management practices done. Uh, we're doing nesting structures, uh, all sorts of things in the winter uh, when it's it's cold and frozen and we can get out into places that we otherwise wouldn't have. And we're also doing a lot of that planning and updating documents and creating burn plans and, uh, you know, you name it. There's just, it's really fun how from season to season, you know, things change in what you're doing, but there is truly never a slow time anymore in the world of a wildlife biologist. It's a a year round, you know, what, what am I moving to next? As soon as you accomplish one task, there's, there's 10 more waiting. And so, um, you know, it keeps you keeps you busy and keeps you focused on trying to improve each area that we have and make it the best that it can be. Right, right. So, with you saying that, right, your year seems very busy, and you have a lot of stuff that you need to accomplish over that year. Now, how do you guys set priorities? And what I mean by that is, obviously, let's say. Uh, a species like the white-tailed deer probably makes the most money for the state of uh, state of Iowa in regards to uh, tags and uh, uh, you know uh, tags and license sold. And then there's something that is really important for Iowa, and that would be uh, pollinators, right? Bees and right. butterflies and stuff like that. How do you guys prioritize what species? or what environment or ecosystem you try to work on or pay maybe more attention to than another uh, ecosystem? Very good point. Um, and it's, it's, it's not easy, I guess I would say, to, to sometimes do that, to try to balance and, and manage any given site for all the species out there. In fact, that's, 
I would say in general, you, you almost can't do that. Uh, every management action has, you know, some sort of reaction, whether that's good for some species or not as good for others. And so it's tough to try to take that all in and, and do what's best. But I guess our my guiding principle is what can we do that's going to be the greatest good for the, the biggest number of species. Right. Um, so I kind of like to look at it and see what what's already out there. You know, again, let's just say any uh, given WMA, um, you know, what what is Mother Nature already given us? What what can we work with out there? If it's already a uh, a large wetland, then we're probably not looking at, you know, trying to do um, forest land management. We're not going to plant trees in a, in a permanent body of water or something like that. So, okay, let's focus on what are the species that we can most uh, – most benefit by doing good wetland management practices and that immediately you know narrows down some of that list it's still a it's still a mind-boggling list of species and and things that we need to keep in mind as we write these management plans but at least we can hone in on you know what's likely there already and if we do this practice or that practice which ones are are most likely to benefit as far as game and non-game that that line has certainly blurred or even I guess I'd say disappeared Um, you know I think many many decades ago it it truly was a little bit more of a game species thing because as you mentioned you know they they bring in the dollars that pay for the management right that's really not the case anymore I can I can certainly testify to that as far as what I do on a daily basis We, we definitely keep those game species in mind and a lot of those activities we're doing it comes to fruit plots and things like that, yeah, they are going to benefit game species and, and those who pursue those species. But we we don't focus, you know, solely on those species anymore. Right. We, we are thinking about monarch butterflies. We're thinking about bumblebees. We're trying to take a little bit more of a holistic approach in this and most of our activities on public lands so that all suites of species have a place out there might not be a, a large chunk of ground on any given WMA, but if we can, again, do the do something for the most species we can on every WMA, we're going to try to do that. So it sounds like you're, you're kind of going for an overall approach, right? What's good for one species is good for another species. In a lot of cases, yes. Okay. Yep, we and we've been kind of trained to think uh, a little more landscape level. You know, don't just look at our at our little postage stamp or our square, you know, where the, the green signs say this is public land and we, you know, we don't just ignore everything else that's around it. We have to look beyond the fence and say, okay, you know, what's, what's going on over here and what's going on up over there. And, you know, how does our management tie into to a little bit bigger picture, a little bit of a landscape level, uh, especially for those species who really have the greatest need out there, the, the ones who are in peril right now, the pollinators or the grassland birds. Um, there are several suites of animals, you could say, that you know are, are trending downward and, and really deserve some special attention. Um, amphibians, reptiles, uh, you know, the list is actually fairly extensive of, of those different types of or groups of animals that you know have seen declines and they require certain specific habitats. So uh, again, you know, we work with uh, with neighbors and and we, we we try to look beyond our own our own property line to say you know if they got something good going on over here, maybe we can complement that or we can do something different to help those other 
species or provide something else in this region that you know isn't isn't provided by by all the neighbors right do you happen to have an example of and I know this this may be a long shot, but uh, an example of a change in the landscape resulting in a a species decline that you guys uh, identified and then addressed, and then now you see uh, that species maybe coming back because of the work you guys have done. Um, yeah, I'm gonna maybe jump. Uh, you know, there's there's some easy ones to, I guess I'll pick the low hanging fruit and jump well outside of my, my local uh, district. But uh, when you look down in Southwest Iowa, kind of South central Iowa, um, down at the Kellerton grasslands complex, um, some of those areas down there that have the, the greater prairie chicken population, the only one in the state and uh, it's hanging on. And I would actually say, well, it's better than hanging on. I guess it's, you know, it's doing well in that, in that specific geographic location even though it was basically extirpated from the state of Iowa, it was gone. Uh, but, you know, they knew that they had a basis down there. They could, they could work with private landowners uh, as well as the, the different public entities that own public land, state, county, federal, and piece together kind of a patchwork across a bigger landscape picture and put, you know, more grassland out there, the right types of grassland, using the right sort of management techniques during the year, and keep those prairie chickens going. So now that's a huge event. Every spring they have um, prairie chicken days, uh, I think they call it down there, and people come from all over to come and watch the, the chickens dance and boom and do their mating rituals. And it just serves as a, a great poster child, I think, of what, what can be done um, with a lot of cooperation, partnership hard work, uh, and, and, you know, concern for a species that otherwise wouldn't be able to make it on their own anymore in, in this part of the world. Right. Absolutely. So let me ask you this then. Um, is there a, a specific species that has kind of an interesting story where maybe they have a bigger impact on the ecosystem than what you originally thought? Like, I don't know, like a bug, if you know, the, the bugs in decline and, oh my God, it's changed. It, it actually, something so small has such a big change. Um, yeah. And, uh, I don't know, being I'm not an entomologist, if I can actually pick what, what you said, a, a bug, um, you know, yeah. insects are a great, great example of that. It'd be hard for me to just pick out one individual species of insect and say, here's the one, but they, that is a great one. As they decline, that has a, you know, a great effect on it ripples through the whole food chain whole food web even up up to us and our food crops and things uh that we rely on mother nature to pollinate uh that's becoming as you well know a, a greater concern around the entire globe of you know what's going to happen a decade from now two decades from now if pollinators continue to disappear uh you know wildlife populations are going to be in trouble uh and and so will we i think so Gotcha. It's something that a lot more people are paying attention to, and, and rightly so. Uh, another good example would be something that eats on a lot of those bugs would be bats. Uh, you know, another good example. Uh, bugs can do great things for us. They can also, certain kinds of bugs can be pretty harmful and, and be pests, I guess, to us. And with bat numbers going down due to different factors, one of the big ones is disease. Uh, you know, the white nose syndrome that's spread across the eastern half of the country at a very alarming rate and, and has impacted bats at, a, at an 
alarming level. Uh, as bat numbers decline, uh, you know, they're not doing that service for us, the best service out there that I know of as far as keeping some insect populations in check. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, another good example of one of those species that, you know, you just don't think of on a daily basis or most people probably don't think of hardly ever, you know, about, about bats. And, and when we do think of them, it's usually not in a good context, but, you know, they're, they're really one of our, uh, one of our greatest allies in the wildlife world, I would say. Right. All right. So I want to talk uh, about something that's kind of uh, on the top of my brain right now, and that is the amount of tags that are handed out uh, as far as deer, because it's deer season. I just bought uh-huh. my, I just bought my uh, my tags uh, for archery season, and I live in Johnson County, so I, you know, at I have to be on on my game this year or in the last couple uh-huh. of years because uh, c- certain counties like Johnson County uh, has a higher population and it has um, uh, limited tags, right? There's, there's a quote, there's the, the quota that we have now. It's like each County gets allotted a right. certain, a certain amount of doe tags. So yep. in Johnson County, I have to be the day it opens. I have to buy my doe tag in Johnson County and then I also hunt down southeastern Iowa, and uh-huh. I don't have to worry about that because there's always leftover tags uh, for for that part of the state. So my question is, how do you guys determine what some of these uh, county allotments are? It's all based on uh, an objective number. We're, we're trying to manage the deer herd overall at a level that is acceptable to uh, the most interest groups, you know, all the interest groups out there. Um, and, and opinions vary, certainly, as you know, that there are a lot of groups that want more deer. There are a lot of groups that want fewer deer. I think we feel like if we're somewhere right in the middle, that hopefully that's the sweet spot. And then we got to maintain that. And that's kind of where those County specific quotas come into play. Uh, you know, deer are not distributed evenly across the landscape in Iowa. There, there are definitely counties that have, a lot higher overall population and they have a lot higher densities, you know, where they're, how many deer are packed into every section would be the way to, to look at that. And, and that's pretty much based on habitat. You know, what is the, what's the quality habitat? So uh, if you're in North central or Northwest Iowa, that's going to be a lot different than, you know, Southern Iowa, like you were talking about. Um, and that's why you see that difference of some counties don't have any additional doe harvest, just the regular harvest throughout all the seasons. That's keeping them on par with, with their goal. But for a number of counties, a majority of the counties in the state, they need that little bit extra pressure on the doe segment of the population to, to keep us in check and keep us as close to objective as, as we can be. They do get, um, you know, they do get tweaked year to year where we have, uh, folks in our research division that are looking closely at, at all the uh, indexes, all the different um, numbers that come in, whether that be harvest, that's one of the best indexes we have, but also our surveys that we do, uh, uh, roadkill index. I know there are several different factors that all go and feed into the, the model of, you know, how many deer are out there and you know, what's the population trend up or down. So it's it's kind of neat to see how that works and to talk year to year. And then one of the most fun things with my job being out in the field, being kind of a field person would be, you know, talking.
here and to get that firsthand report from folks on, you know, what are you seeing and how does it compare to the past? So um, that's even a, an important factor into what, you know, what we do uh, yeah. as far as you know, adjusting county by county levels. You know, I have a pretty good pulse on what's going on in my six counties, whereas I wouldn't be able to really speak to what's going on in, in your home county, Dan. But, right. but the guy who, you know, is the biologist for you, he would because he talks to hunters and folks like you and he, you know, is, is out there and, and collecting tissue samples and he sees, you know, deer that are being harvested. And um, once all those factors come together, we can kind of sit down at a table and, and get together and discuss, you know, our where are we at? You know, are we harvesting too many? Are we harvesting too few? Or are we right where we need to be? Right. So <laughs> I don't know really how to word this next question, so I'm going to do it how I would ask it. <laughs> There's a group of people out there who think they're smarter than a biologist, and their little world that they live in gives them the right to question what you do. Uh, and voice and obviously these people voice their opinion the loudest what would you say to someone who maybe disagrees with the outcomes or maybe like the reduction of deer tags or the, the or the increase of deer tags or or there's too many non-residents coming into the state i don't know you know there's those guys sure, yeah what would what would you say to a guy like that well i would say every opinion is is valid uh because it is, I truly believe that. I think most most everyone in our department believes that everyone is entitled to their own opinion. Um, you know, not not everyone is entitled to their own set of facts. Is one thing I like to say, though. There, right. you know, fact is fact, and uh, that's typically based on data. So we use the best science out there and the best data we have available, and a lot of that comes from the public. You know, are they reporting their their harvests? Um, those types of things. So. Our data is only as good as, as kind of what we get, you know, what we get back. But, um, you know, we're going to uh, we're going to use that data and everything we do is is transparent and and clearly set, I guess I would say. So anybody who wants to argue, I feel like we have pretty good um, background to, I guess, explain and show exactly why we're doing what we're doing. You know, nothing is done in secret chambers behind closed doors or anything like that. It's it's a. It's a pretty, uh, you know, upfront and and on the level sort of process, but uh, we will never ever uh, make every person happy in the world, and that's whether you're a, a DNR biologist or I think really in any other walk of life, uh, there is going to be someone or some segment that you know probably has some other viewpoint than than what we have. So I respect that. Uh, doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily change what we do based on you know, that, that one squeaky wheel, but right. we're going to continue to try to, to do what's right for both the resource and the majority of islands. Gotcha. So uh, a little bit ago, you mentioned something about there, there may be some outside influences on how, uh, let's say uh, a species like deer and, and the number of, uh, tags are allocated to uh, a certain County. What are some of those, uh, and what I mean by that is not the Department of Natural Resources. So, so influencers outside of that, who are those people, and and why do they get a say in your data? 
Well, they don't get a say in the data. The data is what it is, but they, they have a seat at the table, I guess, quote unquote, I will yeah. say. And, and that's because, um, oh, don't, don't quote me on the year here. I couldn't tell you when, when exactly that was, but, um, you know, there was basically kind of a deer, uh, advisory group put together several years ago, um, back in the mid to late 2000s, I want to say, is kind of when that was. Basically, when we were at an all-time high number, and we had too many deer across most of the state. Right. Uh, you know, we, we formed this deer advisory committee or group, and it had representation from lots of different interest groups. So I know there are certain groups that, that always kind of get pegged or the finger pointed at, um, whichever side of the fence you're sort of standing on on the issue. You know, you want to point fingers at the other, but... Uh, that's the great thing about doing this way is that everybody has a seat at the table. They can talk face-to-face, bring the issues out. I don't really think it's fair to just point fingers one way or another um, because everybody has a say. I think everyone does ultimately agree deer are valuable. They're, they're a valuable part of the Iowa landscape. They're valuable um, you know, culturally uh, as, as part of our heritage you know, to, to individuals, to families, to the people in general. They're a very important part of our economy. Um, so they, they have value and they have a place, but they you know they need to be managed at an appropriate level. We can't have too many deer. We, right. we had that uh, a decade or so ago. Uh, luckily, we, we got that under control thanks to the response of all of our deer hunters across the state. But, um, you know, those those groups deserve to have a voice, I guess I would say, to answer, answer your question because, you know, they have... Um, you know, a stake in it too. That, that's why they have a voice and should have a voice is everybody has a stake, whether you're growing trees or crops or, um, you know, anything else, or, or you're a hunter that, you know, wants to see more, as many deer as possible. You know, most of us hunters would love to just be covered up in deer come every fall when we're sitting in our stand, but that's not realistic and that's not healthy for the landscape to have right. uh, a drastic overabundance of deer. So it's great to have both, you know, both sides of the argument, if you will, at the table so that, you know, we can hear both sides. We have our data, like I said, that the data is the data and it is what it is. And then uh, amongst the deer advisory committee, we can come up with, you know, where do we go from here? Right. Um, So the next thing I want to ask is, all right, so it's now time to get, you know, uh, winter's over. It's time to get into the into the fields and start doing the work, get in, getting into the land and maybe planning. How do you guys determine what kind of grasses or crops you want to plant on these public lands for whether it's habitat or strictly a food source? Yeah, I guess we kind of look at that that management plan that we spoke of earlier, and you know, what's the objective on the wildlife area? Is it to have um, extremely high diversity, lots of flowering plants that'll benefit uh, a lot of pollinators as well as our our more traditional game species, or is it to have uh, on certain parts of a WMA, you know, really thick, rank, tall grass that, that is going to provide excellent thermal cover and stand up better in tough winters. And um, so, I mean, it comes back to the objective, but um, you know, say we have that objective figured out, and I guess to give a little more insight into maybe what or how is uh, um, we like to have diversity out there on the areas, uh, not 
not every seeding or every food plot or every planting should be the same thing. Uh, in general, I think the more variety out there, the better, because that that goes right back to that uh, doing what you can to provide something good for the most number of wildlife uh, wildlife species yeah. out there. So, so uh, we like to go native. I mean, I will definitely tout that. You know, we're typically not putting non-native uh, type grasses or trees or any anything like that out there we're not putting anything out there that we know to be invasive something that's going to spread and and become a problem later so we like to go native things that are adapted to our our local region here in Iowa and and then yeah again back to the objectives you know what what kind of structure are you looking for bloom bloom times on certain plants uh, what what species are you maybe uh really catering to as far as food value, brood value, cover value. Um, So I've done all kinds of different sorts of plantings out there, and it's kind of fun to to have such a variety and to to see, you know, what works on some sites, what what works better on other sites. Even that's part of it, I guess, is, you know, is this a floodplain? Is this on on the top of a hill that is very well drained? Uh, All those factors kind of play into how we decide what's going to fit best here in in this uh, piece of the puzzle yeah how much of, of your job re- revolves around getting rid of uh non-native or invasive species it's becoming more and more uh i would i would say uh i've been at this now uh 14 years i guess working with the dnr and i feel like as time has gone on through my career uh that that is becoming a, a bigger part of of a wildlife manager's job uh, you know, we just continue to see, and it's it's all types of invasives. It's not just plants. It can be insects. It can be animals. Uh, but they're kind of uh, hitting us from all sides. And then you also throw in their disease. Uh, that, you know, I, I'll lump that sort of together with invasive species. But between, you know, invasive um, species and invasive type diseases that seem to be uh, becoming more prevalent or more of an issue, that takes a significant part of my job. Right. So is you hear about this ash borer that has, uh-huh. you know, I think it, it started out east, right? Now it's making its way uh, right. west. It's jumped the Mississippi River now. It's in Iowa. Can, right. you, can you explain to me what that is and what it does to these trees? Well, the emerald ash borer is a, it's a, a beetle-type little bug as well. And... Um, it, it puts its larva, it, it selects for ash trees. That That is the host. And it's not not just uh, one ash species. As far as I'm aware, it goes for multiple uh, of our ash, our native ash trees. You know, we have green ash, white ash. Um, there are several different ash trees, but it does hone in just on those. And the larva that are underneath the bark and in the, the living tissue, the, the part of the tree that transports water, nutrients, everything the tree needs to, to live, that's where the larvae are, and they start boring their galleries and chewing through and, and basically just kind of slowly strangling and cutting off that, that flow of, of nutrients uh, for the tree, and so the tree eventually succumbs and dies. And as the adult form can, can move on, you know, from tree to tree and from timber to the next timber, uh, the problem moves 
And what really can exacerbate it, obviously, then is if it moves down a highway at 65 miles an hour to the next county or the next state, and boom, you know, you start you start a new infestation. So um, that's that's part of uh, you know we're just we're such a mobile uh, population, you know, anymore humans that you know we in our leisure time we or even in our work time, you know, we're we're crossing state lines or even. Uh, you know, country lines going, going around the world. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a global thing anymore. A, a pest from um, the other side of the the globe could easily find its way to the United States and, and has a lot of, a lot of these pests have come from foreign nations and I'm sure probably vice versa, uh, you know, as far as us to them. So with global commerce and, and stuff like that, it's just a, a whole nother level of, you know, a couple hundred years ago, you wouldn't have seen that. A, a, a pest or a disease would have marched across the landscape at Mother Nature's pace, which typically is pretty slow. And that kind of gives nature time to eventually adapt and evolve. And, you know, you, you got to hope that, like in the case of the ash borer, not every single ash tree dies and those that live. Uh, they start the next generation, and they're going to be more resistant and, and hopefully make it so that, you know, I don't know how long it'll take, Dan, but hopefully, uh, you know, a, a generation or two from now talks about, yeah, you know, remember the ash borer thing we, we hear about, uh, we hear granddad talk about it. It was big back in the early 2000s, you know, and yeah. hopefully it runs its course and, um, you know, uh, nature kind of finds a, a new equilibrium. But for so now, there's nothing that can be done. You know, it, across the, the landscape, I would say I don't think so. And I'm I'm not a forester, and I'm not going to claim to to be the ver- the most knowledgeable person on it in right. our department. I'm certainly not. We do have experts that um, you know work with landowners or anyone who wants to know about these things. But from what I know of it, yeah, you can you know you can protect certain individual trees. You know, if you have a a tree in your yard and you wanna you wanna try to protect it and treat uh, and, and keep that pest out, but when you start talking about it moving across our landscape in um, in Iowa, I mean it's just not realistic to think you're going to be out there in our bigger timbers and stuff, and you know identifying it and stopping it at a at a large scale. Right, right. Now the yeah. next thing that kind of pops up on me on on the radar for me, and you hear a lot of people talking about it right now, but to me, you had there's two sti- uh, sides of the story. CWD. CWD is the worst thing. It's the end of the deer population. We're all screwed. We're all going to die. Or CWD, it is a hoax. It's nothing to be worried about. What? Where does the state of Iowa stand on CWD? Well, uh, CWD is real. That, that's certainly where our, our state or our department stands on the issue. It's It's not a hoax, I can say that. Um, as a matter of fact, but I also would not call it the end of our deer population or the end of deer hunting. We certainly don't think and don't hope that, you know, that's, that's the message that people are receiving or believing either. Um, but it is, it is a concern. It, it's absolutely a concern. Um, you know, it will have population impacts. It will have herd level impacts. It already has in in states that have had it for a lot longer than we have in Iowa. We're still really kind of on the the emerging end of of this disease as far as within our state borders. So it's going to take several years to to really kind of start to tell 
I guess, ultimately where this takes us. But, um, yeah, we, we are going to continue to have deer. Um, one thing about CWD is it, it takes a while to um, incubate, if you will, I guess, and then to actually express express itself as clinical disease in deer. So that's why I say, you know, it, it could change uh, the structure of our population. We might not see as many older deer, but, you know, deer aren't going to disappear off the, the landscape entirely. Um uh, based on what I know of the disease now, because we will still have uh, at least that younger segment of the population. But, um, you know, over time, that the prevalence rate of it might go up. So even though we might have younger deer, many of them could be infected, and they're just biding their time until they, they do uh, become clinical and actually get sick and then deteriorate and die. So um, the effects on hunting, that's a whole other side of it. You know, I mean, you got the biology of the disease and the deer... Uh, the deer population, and then you have kind of the whole human uh, human dimension of it, or kind of the human behavioral aspect. Uh, there are some hunters, and I know this from talking to many, many people, uh, or many hunters, you know, throughout my job throughout the year, that there are some of them who really don't seem to care at all. They, yep, I'm going to hunt no matter what. It's not going to not going to scare me away. And we have some people kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum that I think if it pops up in a county, they're going to give serious thought to do I want to continue hunting in this this area. Uh, I I don't know if either end of the spectrum is right or wrong, but, you know, that's a personal decision. Uh, DNR employees are not, um, you know, human health experts. We're not doctors. We're not uh, food, food safety experts. Um, we can tell you about the disease, tell you what it does to deer. And we're going to follow the the guidelines by folks who are human health experts, like the Centers for Disease Control. And if they say, uh, you know, if you know you have a a positive CWD deer, we recommend not eating it. Then that's the guideline that me myself, as a as a department employee and as a as a hunter, as a person, you know, I'm going to follow that that guideline. So it does not mean I'm going to hang up my bow or my muzzle loader or my shotgun and quit i'm gonna continue to hunt and enjoy it and not live in fear of the disease but i'm gonna just be cognizant that it is out there and it's probably a good idea to um, tissue sample my deer when i harvest it and based on those results i can act accordingly right what is the state of iowa doing uh right now is are, are you guys still in data collection stage or do you have a uh I guess, a process in place to, to battle this. Yep, we do. And we have been battling it since the very first uh, day we learned that we had the disease in a wild deer within our borders. And luckily, uh, we I wouldn't say we've been battling it, but we've been monitoring for the disease, excuse me, for a long time before that. So uh, we've, we've been testing fairly heavily in Iowa since 2002. So we have a really good... Um, history and, and a really good data set of, of sampling around every county within the state, but focused heavier sampling in areas that we knew would be the, the most likely spots for it to show up first. So, um, you know, what we're doing is, uh, you know, once the disease establishes itself on the landscape, uh, we know from all the other states that have gone before us, it's very tough to eradicate it, I guess, if you want to use that term, yeah. just to, to completely annihilate it and, you know, it's gone and part of the, the past and never have to worry about it again. That's probably not likely. 
but you can slow the spread. You can slow that that growth and and hopefully limit the number of deer in those in those areas that have the disease as to how many deer have it. And and the biggest way I think of doing that is through um, public education, I guess, for lack of a better term, is just making sure that folks know what are the best practices to to do out there as a hunter or as a landowner. Um, you know that's. That's the biggest thing. It's another example of if the disease spreads at Mother Nature's pace, it's it's only gonna you know move maybe a, a mile or two a year. You would think you know it's gonna just go on the hoof as the deer the deer travels. But if if aided by by humans and and moved whether it's through a carcass or through uh, you know live deer or contaminated you know materials, you name it, um, all of a sudden you know it can jump a county or two or ten and. You know, that's what's kind of scary about it is we just don't know where it could pop up next that's unexpected. We know where we ex- expect it to pop up naturally, but, you know, where where is that uh, little little unexpected flyer going to all of a sudden pop up on the radar and surprise us? So right. that's why we do continue to monitor annually. Our, our biologists and, and staff are out there every year during deer seasons trying to work with hunters, with taxidermists, with uh you know, landowners um, getting those deer samples, but yeah, we're going to continue that campaign of putting putting the word out there about the disease and how to best uh, best battle it for for the public. And then we're going to continue to try to manage those uh, those areas that really have the disease, those those deer management zones, right. by uh, keeping you know keeping the the prevalence rate down. And that does that does include harvest. You know, that's something that. Um, it's, it's got to be part of the plan. It just does. You know, if you don't want deer numbers to continue to grow and then the, the prevalence rate of the disease to, to continue to grow, likewise, you need to keep numbers at a manageable level. Right. All right. So on kind of the same uh, the same storyboard here, how much communication do you guys have with the captive service uh, servant industry? Like, elk and deer um, throughout the state? Well, I do know there's collaboration between uh, between departments. You know, a lot of that falls outside of the Department of Natural Resources, but um, administrators in our department certainly are, uh, you know, working with our, our neighboring uh, departments in the state of Iowa who do have more oversight over those industries. And uh, I'm I'm someone at, at my level in the field. You know, I don't have any, uh, or typically don't have any personal collaboration with uh, with that. But um, the conversation is ongoing, and we do work well together. I know that that's something that at levels above me is going on. So, right. right. Not not a whole lot more as far as you know details on on how that works. Uh, you know, I I guess I can't really speak to that. Right. Well, let's get into some some fun talk here. I want to ask you on a personal level, what is the best part about your job or the favorite activity uh, that you do throughout a year that you just love doing, you get excited for? Well, gosh, there's so many of them. Again, I, I truly believe this when I say I, I think I have the greatest job in the world. And uh, I am so lucky and, and blessed to be able to, to say that, you know, to, to end up exactly where where I wanted to be as a kid, you know, growing up as a as a hunter and an angler and thinking about, you know, meeting that conservation officer when you're a kid or whatever and having a positive experience with that. Thinking, man, that, 
that would be a cool job, you know, to work for the Iowa DNR. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't change a thing about it. And some of the things I love about it most are the fact that I get to work uh, with people who are equally passionate about our outdoors as me. You know, that excitement, I think, you know, feeds off of off of uh, one another and, and builds. And it is just great to have, uh, whether it's colleagues or even, you know, working with landowners and, and other other entities who share our same love of of wildlife and natural resources and the outdoors is just, it's exciting. I guess it's fun to be around people like that on a, on a daily basis. I like that I get to work outdoors uh, almost as much as I want. I, I won't quite say that. I do have some of those plans to write and reports to do and things like that. So right. once in a while I, uh, I find myself uh, parked at the desk, but um, I love that it's a mix of, you know, indoor and outdoor, and, and I get to cover six counties, so I might be, you know, uh, clear up in the the Driftless area north of Dubuque, you know, up in the beautiful river bluff country one day, and then I might be down, um, you know, in more agricultural landscapes, but working on a, you know, a pothole wetland or a, or a nice prairie the next day. Um, and, and I do like the the few times where we actually get to do kind of the hands-on wildlife stuff, whether that's, uh, you know, trapping and banding waterfowl or, uh, you know, working working with deer hunters and taking tissue samples and things like that. It's just such a a, a fun thing, I guess, to, to be able to know that what you're doing is actually positively impacting our outdoor resource. Right. Man, that's awesome. I'll tell you what, when I was a kid, uh, I did, I did this, I had the same kind of thing. Like, I want to be a DNR officer. I want to, I want to be a, you know, all, all I want to do all day is drive around and count deer. You know, that, that was the, when I was, when I was, uh, young, man, I thought that was the, uh, that was the, the coolest thing. And then getting to talk to guys like you, man, it, it really does sound like you have one of the greatest jobs in the world. And, uh, so with, with that said, then, is there a part of the job that you absolutely hate? Like, okay, well, we just got uh, we just got an email from uh, Top Brass that says we got to go hand remove poison ivy or you know whatever. Like in the middle of the summer, do you do you guys have to do tasks like that as well? Oh yeah, we have uh, we have tasks that are you know hot, sweaty, dirty. You know, not not as much fun, but I. I don't think I can say that there's a part of the job that I hate. I, gotcha. I really don't. Um, you know, I mean, there again, there are parts of it that aren't as fun. There aren't, aren't as glamorous. Um, doesn't mean they're not valuable. In fact, some of those are probably the most valuable. That's, that's right. for me being an outdoorsman, that's kind of that. Like I said, the, the once in a while when I'm kind of chained to the desk and I'm staring at a computer screen, uh, that that's important work. I mean, that's a big part of my job is making sure that, you know, I'm, I'm communicating with folks um, and, you know, I'm getting uh, good information out there and, and a lot of that's done through computer work and, and through the phone and stuff like that these days. But yeah, I don't, I don't hate that one bit. It's, you know, it's part of the job, but it's, it's not as fun as going out there and, and um, doing prescribed fire on a 200 acre prairie or something like that. You know, I mean, that's the stuff that you just, that's why you got into the job. So as, as you learn, you know, uh, you think it's all going to be outdoors and all going to be the hands-on fun. Well, that's a big part of it, but so is the kind of the administrative and, uh, um, you know, just managing the budget and some of those kinds of things, making sure that you're, you're doing what you need to be doing. Um, 
in that way as well. So. Right, right. So, you know, as the budgets continually decrease over the years, um, and it just is, is hard for you guys to to balance that budget and put money everywhere that that it needs to be. How important, and I don't know if if you work with them a lot, but how important is it for uh, guys like me or listeners or just average Joes being able to maybe volunteer to help you guys out? Well, it's important. Um, You know, I I wouldn't say... uh, I mean, I guess I wouldn't say that it's it's critical. You know, the we're not going to fail in our mission if we don't have you know right. some of that that help. But it it certainly makes our lives not only easier but better because we like you know sharing our our experiences, sharing our knowledge with people. I mean, there again, I I feel like at least I hope every time we work with someone who's not an employee and maybe on a voluntary basis or even just a you know, a summer summer internship type basis. I I sure as heck hope that they leave. Uh, you know, they leave that day or that summer, whatever it is, with um, you know a little bit more of a spark burning in them about man, that is you know that is really cool or that is you know I'm going to carry that that on something that I learned or uh, you know some of that um, that fire onto you know my personal life or my circle of friends, my family. So the interactions alone make it worth you know. Uh, working with volunteer groups and um, but yeah the the extra the help does really come in handy Dan I mean again uh, my team consists of me and and two other full-time staff right now working in those those six counties and we have uh, 17,000 and some odd change acres uh, that, that we're in charge of so um, you know if, if you say hey I want to grab some loppers and and come out and cut some brush that doesn't belong where, where it's growing. I'm never going to turn my back on that. I'd say, you bet. Let's, go out there and let's do that side by side. You know, I'll be out there with you and down, crawling through the, um, the dirt or, or getting poked by the thorns and let's, let's cut those and treat those and let's talk about why we're doing it and, and how, it, how it's going to improve things and where we hope to be, you know, uh, five years from now, 10 years from now. So, um, yeah, I, I hope that we never lose that, that, public interest uh i hope that folks always feel like they can approach uh, anyone with the dnr and not only talk to us but say hey i'd like to you know learn more about what you do or i'd like to jump in and ride along with you someday and um and i'm gonna always always be open to that so perfect well kurt man i really appreciate your time today uh i do uh, have a big interest in what you do on the Mississippi River, but I think I want to save that for a another episode. And uh, again, I appreciate your time and thanks for doing what you do. And thanks for taking time to hop on the podcast. You are welcome. Yep, I appreciate it. And uh, good luck. And yeah, hopefully we'll we'll talk again down the road. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That brings us to the end of another episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. Please. Go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Hit the subscribe button, and then that way everything comes to you automatically. Also, be sure to check out BondurantCustomFurniture.com. They support this podcast, so please go out and support them. Other than that, hopefully everybody has a great rest of the week, a great rest of the month, and get outside, enjoy Mother Nature, and we'll talk to you next time.